This morning, we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 5, continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, you recall that we looked at Jesus' teaching regarding adultery of the heart. And this week, we're going to look at what he says about adultery and marriage. And uh, it is something uh, that would no doubt have surprised his hearers, uh, what he has to say. He also deals briefly with the issue of divorce, which was a blight not only on that culture, uh, but on ours as well. In fact, before reading the text, I I wonder, don't show your hands yet, uh, uh, I wonder if I might ask for a show of hands from anyone in the following categories, and don't don't raise your hand until, until I list the categories. If you've ever been divorced... If you are married to someone who has been divorced, if someone in your immediate family has been divorced, your parents, brothers, sisters, children, or grandchildren, or if a close friend of yours has been divorced, raise your hands if you fit any of those categories. I certainly do. Okay, that's almost everybody. This isn't a big sample size, but... That, that should tell us something about our culture and how rampant divorce is in our culture. So this is a problem that didn't just plague the first century culture in which Jesus gave this teaching, but plagues our culture perhaps even more so. And so I think we should be all the more attentive then when we read what he has to say here about marriage and divorce. It's very brief. It's in the third antithesis. Remember, there are six of these here in, in chapter 5, here in the Sermon on the Mount. And each of them begins with a statement, something like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And here, because he's carrying on with a concept he just spoke about, adultery in the heart, he says, Matthew five thirty one. therefore it has been said, Or furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now that let him give, that's a a third person command. Uh, Usually commands are issued in the second person. You give. Somebody says give a certificate of divorce. Well, there's a a third person command in both Hebrew and in Greek and here in English. And that's important that we keep that in mind. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. And of course, it's focusing on the man being the one doing the divorcing because that's typically how things went here in first century Jewish culture in which Jesus is given this commandment. But you could flip it around. And uh, switch the woman and, and the man role here, and the teaching would be the same, right? Now, having read the text, let's take a moment to pray, and then we're going to try to understand as best we can what our Lord Jesus was driving at here. Holy Father, it is our, our great privilege to know you, to know your many mercies for our sins, to know your grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. You are the omniscient the all-knowing, the all-wise God. And we get to know you. You have condescended through your Son to take on our humanity through the virgin birth and to live a perfectly sinless life. And your Son, Jesus, not only lived a perfectly sinless life, but having done so for us, he, he died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins where he bore the wrath for our sins on the cross. And he rose from the dead and conquered death on our behalf. And he ascended to your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for us. Such is the salvation that we get to know. Such is your grace toward us. And we understand these things because of the work of your spirit in our hearts. And we therefore are reminded that we can only understand what you would have us to understand in this text today 
through the power of your spirit as well. So we ask that you would fill us with your spirit and with understanding that we might grasp what our Lord Jesus was truly intending to say, that we might learn from it the things you'd have us to learn. We ask these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Some years back, uh, a man named John, and, or a couple actually, named John and Nancy Williamson Adams, wrote a book entitled Divorce, How and When to Let Go. Kind of a, an instruction manual for divorce, if you will. In that book, they state the following. Your marriage can wear out. I'm glad to say that after almost 37 years of marriage to my beloved Kimmy, I've never thought that for a second, but uh, they have the gall to say this. Your marriage can wear out. People can change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. I'm glad this person isn't standing here. I, I think I'd have to resist the temptation not to hit this man. But uh, I, I admit it, this makes me angry. It goes on to say, getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. I'll translate that for you. You can feel really good about committing a heinous sin. We want to help you feel better about that. That's Christianese for what they just said. If you believe what they just said there, I have some beachfront property in downtown Bloomington I can sell you. Such views are the worst kinds of lies, and their attempts to rationalize, as I said earlier, grievous sin. But this isn't a new thing. Jesus dealt with such a low view of marriage in his own day, as I've already pointed out, and he chose it as one of the chief issues by which to contrast the genuine righteousness of the kingdom with the self-righteousness and hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, all of what we're reading here is Jesus giving examples of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees versus the righteousness required of the kingdom. Remember that back in verse 20, he said, I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so when he goes on to say, you've heard it said, or furthermore it has been said, as he says in verse 31, he's talking about the kinds of things the scribes and Pharisees are saying, and he's responding to it with what a genuine righteousness ought to look like, and he's not saying anything new, as we've seen in our previous examples, and as we'll see in the coming weeks. He's simply employing the whole counsel of God pointing out more of the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures that they had and showing how they haven't really been listening to it like they should have been. And he's doing that in this text before us today as well. So let's take a look at Jesus' statement of their teaching again in verse 31, and then we'll see how he contrasts it with his own teaching. In verse 31, he writes, Furthermore, it has been said, this carries on that you have heard it said, from whom, again, the scribes and the Pharisees, this type of teaching that they were getting on a regular basis. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, as we've seen when we've looked at the previous two antitheses having to do with anger and in adultery in the heart, the problem Jesus highlighted with the teaching of the Jewish leaders was that they tend to, to emphasize only certain portions of the Old Testament law in order to make it more easily obeyed. Or they emphasized, in this case, things that they wanted to emphasize because it serves some purpose of theirs. I mean, if you're a selfish hypocrite, uh, you want an easy way to divorce your wife, perhaps. And so you don't want to emphasize a teaching that you think makes it easy for you. And that's sort of what's going on here, that... Jesus' citation of their teaching shows that they've committed this kind of error. For example, 
Jesus is actually citing their citation of Deuteronomy 24.1, which distorts, their teaching rather, distorts what that text actually says. So Jesus is repeating their take on Deuteronomy 24.1 in order to contrast his teaching with it, right? And their, their statement of it is a distortion. For the Jewish leaders are saying that the giving of a writing of divorce was commanded by Moses. And that's why I highlighted that for you when we read the text. Notice again that the scribes and Pharisees cite Moses as saying, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a writing or a certificate of divorce. That's an imperative, a command. However, even a cursory reading of the Old Testament passages here shows that they're wrong. So if you turn back to Deuteronomy 24, or if you just want to listen to me read it, that's fine. Mark it down, and you can go back and read it later. But if, if you look back at Deuteronomy 24, there's a section here in verses 1 through 4 that talks about divorce. And this is Moses speaking. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and the text doesn't go into what this uncleanness means. We'll try to think about what it can mean later, a little further on. But we're told, if she find no, finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. It doesn't say, if, if this happens, he must write her a certificate of divorce. It's a, Moses is simply assuming that this happens and that they will write a certificate of divorce. And he puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, this poor woman, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which your Lord God is giving you as an inheritance. And we won't try to unpack all what that means, because there's a lot that we could get into. It's not the easiest passage actually to understand, in my opinion. But Jesus doesn't get into all of it. There's no need for him to. The point we need to see is that Moses clearly permitted divorce for what he called some uncleanness. It was going on, and he was regulating what was happening, right? And so he permitted divorce along with a proper granting of a certificate of divorce. But there's no place here where he commanded it. They were presenting his teaching as though it was like a command, and it wasn't. In fact, when our Lord Jesus addressed this same issue on another occasion later on, he explicitly brought this out. So if you go back to Matthew and go all the way to Matthew 19, we'll find that Jesus addresses this again and says some of the same things he says here in chapter 5, only he gets into more detail. In Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. Shock of all shocks, it's the, it's the Pharisees who are saying this stuff, right? Uh, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. And saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, notice what they're, they're doing here. In Deuteronomy 24, there was some uncleanness mentioned as the possible grounds for divorce. They're wondering if that means for just any old reason. In other words, let's expand uncleanness to just about anything the husband wants it to be. Would that be okay? Now, the reason they're asking this is because there was a rabbinical debate about this, and they want Jesus to weigh in on it. And he's going to end up actually disagreeing with both sides of that debate. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> sometimes he sides with the Pharisees against the Sadducees on things like the resurrection, and sometimes they set up a false choice for him, and he doesn't agree with either one of those sides of the debate, right? And, and this is sort of an issue like that. 
But they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Weigh in on our divorce debate. And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? See, he's going back before Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 here. He's going back to Genesis. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then... They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. See, they're debating about how they can understand some uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24.1. How broadly can we take that? How much divorce can we allow here? And Jesus is saying, you need to go back to the beginning and read the whole Bible. <laughs> And you need to go back to what God's intention for marriage was to begin with before you read Deuteronomy 24 and what Moses permitted there. And so he then said to them in Matthew 19, verse 7, why then did Moses command a certificate of divorce to put her away? You know, this is in their perspective. Moses gave a command. So he said, why did he do that? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. They made it a command. Jesus is setting up what they say here and then expressly denying it. He said, no, it wasn't really commanded. It was permitted. That's not the same thing as commanded. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her is divorced commits adultery. And we're going to get to that statement in Matthew 5.32 in a moment. I'm wondering, though, as I read this, could it be that Jesus viewed the divorced wife as defiled in Deuteronomy 24.4. Remember, if she's divorced and she goes and marries someone else and comes back, she's been defiled and he can't remarry her again? I, I'm just wondering if Jesus viewed the divorced wife as defiled because that husband in divorcing her had caused her to commit adultery. I'm just wondering if he, that's what Jesus thought that meant because of what he says here. I'm not sure. Uh, I still struggle to understand that passage in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, to be quite honest with you. I'm so glad I have Jesus' clearer teaching here. So, not only had the common teaching of the Jewish leaders changed Moses' description of what was happening and his implied permission of it into a command, but it had also ignored the grounds upon which Moses' permission was based. Moses had permitted divorce only on the basis of some uncleanness, which must have been a serious thing, and they were trying to make it into a light thing. They were apparently trying to take this term in the broadest possible way as divorce for just any reason. Now, as for the meaning of this phrase, some uncleanness, I... I struggle, with, I struggle with it because Moses doesn't spell out what it means, and all you can do is try to ascertain what it means in its context. I think D.A. Carson seeks to try an explanation of it, and I think this is probably the best explanation I've come across. And this is what D.A. Carson says about this uncleanness or indecency mentioned in Deuteronomy 24. He writes, but what was this an indecency or uncleanness in Moses' day that, that allowed for divorce? Something indecent or unclean could not be equated with adultery, for the normal punishment for that was death, not divorce. That's a good point to raise. Though, it, he writes, it is, not all, it is not at all clear that the death penalty was actually regularly imposed for adultery like it should have been. Nor could the indecency be suspicion of adultery, for which the prescribed procedure was this bitter water rite that you can read about in, in Numbers 5. Yet the indecency must have been shocking, 
ancient Israel took marriage seriously. The best assumption is that the indecency was any lewd, immoral behavior, sometimes including, but not restricted to, adultery, for example, lesbianism or sexual misconduct that fell short of intercourse, perhaps. He's wondering if it could mean something like that. Whatever it was, it had to be something pretty serious, he said. And I think Jesus felt that way, right? <laughs> because he said, if you go back and you, if you take this in the context of God's institution of marriage, you can't assume that Moses is saying you can get divorced for just any reason. I mean, Moses wrote Genesis too, right? He, he knew what he had revealed from God earlier, and he wasn't trying to undo that willy-nilly, for sure. And so Jesus is just taking the whole thing in, in its larger context, as we should, and showing us that you've got to keep God's original intention in mind and understand that though God sometimes tolerates something or permits it because of the hardness of our hearts, that doesn't mean it's God's best for us. And it certainly isn't tantamount to his commanding it. Carson may well be right in his take, but the scribes and Pharisees to whom Jesus was reacting were most definitely wrong in their lax view of divorce. And this becomes very clear in what he goes on to say in verse 32. And I hope you're, hope you're still tracking with me here, getting into a lot of stuff I know. But I think we have to understand the background of what was going on here in order to understand Jesus' strong statement. And he says, in this emphatic way that he's been speaking, you've heard it said, and then he comes in with, but I say, in a very emphatic way, but I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now we can see why Jesus would see um, divorcing someone for just any reason as causing the other person to commit adultery, because in the eyes of God, they're still married, obviously. That's the only way what Jesus says makes any sense. If you get divorced for a reason that God has not allowed and you remarry, that's adultery because in God's eyes, you're still married. That's clearly what's in Jesus' mind here. There's only one case in which you can divorce and remarry, right? You can divorce at all, and Jesus adds remarry here, right? And that is for this sexual immorality. Um. And remember, Jesus said that exact same thing later on when they challenged him about divorce in Matthew 19, 9. He made the exact same statement, made the same point. Now, what's interesting in both cases, in, in both Matthew 5, 32 and Matthew 19, 9, where he gives these statements, is our, our Lord Jesus' use of the Greek word porneia. Uh, if that sounds familiar to you, uh, it's one of the Greek words that make our word pornography. Right? The graphy part means a writing. Right? Um, and, but this word porneia was used as the only basis for legitimate divorce. And the New King James translates the term as sexual immorality, as do a number of other modern translations. And that's not a bad translation of, the, of what it means. It's some kind of sexual immorality. But it's a very broad term. As the analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament makes clear, it is a general term used of every kind of extramarital, excuse me, extramarital, there we go, unlawful or unnatural sexual intercourse. So it could be used to describe, say, homosexuality as well, or pedophilia. It could be used to describe any kind of sexual sin. So it's not the usual word for adultery. That word would be moikeia. And when he speaks of adultery in this context, like adultery of the heart, Jesus uses that term, right? So it's not the common word for adultery. So then why did he use it? Why instead of saying, if you divorce your wife for any other reason than adultery, you cause her to commit adultery, if adultery is what he has in mind, why doesn't he just say it? Why does he use this word porneia? Now, some people say it's really because he wants to broaden out any kind of sexual sin and that maybe that's Jesus' understanding of some uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24. 
Um, I suppose that's possible, but I don't think that's why he does it. I think he does have adultery in mind here, even though he uses the word porneia. But I think there's a particular reason he picks this word in this context instead of the more common word, moikeia. And I want to give you my reason for why I think he picked it, this word. Um, Now, most of you who have been around here know that when they're dealing with Old Testament texts or the teaching of the Bible in the first century, in the New Testament, whether it's the teaching of Jesus or the apostles, they most commonly cite the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible known as the Septuagint. Most of the citations of the Old Testament in the New Testament are actually from the Greek text that most people used as their Bible in the first century. And so you have to keep that in mind because the word, Jesus picks this word, porneia, because it is used in a very particular Old Testament Septuagint passage to speak about a divorce and the reason for it. And it was God divorcing Israel. This is in Jeremiah chapter 3. And this is why I think Jesus uses the word here. I think he uses it for a twofold purpose, as we'll see. And you may disagree with me, but hear me out. And if you think I'm wrong, that's okay. I don't live to be agreed with. We can agree to disagree. But this is, after studying this and thinking about it over the years, I'm pretty convinced that this is why Jesus used this word. Back in Jeremiah 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. We're going to try to get as much of the context as we can. And you have to remember that God viewed Israel as like a bride, and he was like a husband, and she cheated on him all the time. And their spiritual adultery, their spiritual cheating on him, he called adultery. But more often than not, in the Septuagint, and also in the Hebrew text, a word for harlotry was used. And in the Septuagint, porneia was used because it, did, it could describe cheating as acting like a whore. So it describes adultery in the worst possible way, is what I'm saying, this word. So beginning in Jeremiah 3, beginning verse 1, they say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? He's talking about how the people of Israel are talking about basically what was said in Deuteronomy 24, right? And here's what God says in response, but you have played the harlot. That's a, word, that's a Greek verb, ekpornuo in this There's a verb, pornuo, and then there's the noun, porneia, right? Uh, There's the noun, adultery. There's a verb to commit adultery, right? And God here is describing, and Jesus is using the same terminology to describe the basis for divorce in the the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount. This is where this terminology comes from. Here's the verb. You have played the harlot with many lovers, God's saying, you've cheated on me many times, right? Yet return to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see. Where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead, You refuse to be ashamed. Will you not from time, from this time rather, cry to me, my father, you're the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? They're wondering about God, will he be angry forever? Because we cheated on him so much, basically, in the context, right? Behold, God says, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. There's pornuo, the verb. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. 
Then I saw, for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, there the word is moikao, or moikao, the, the, the verb that actually means adultery. But notice in this passage, adultery and porneia are the same thing. Adultery is being described as acting like a whore. In its most, it's the most negative way you could describe adultery. Many husbands have done this, and many, you know, I suppose why would say acted like a gigolo, right? And then he says, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. God divorced Israel only after she cheated against him over and over and over and over again. You've got in the, in the time of Jesus, people looking for any old reason to get out of a marriage quick. God's example is mercy after mercy after mercy and after mercy and after she finally makes it abundantly clear she just doesn't want to be his wife anymore. He then gives her a writing of divorce. Says it plainly here. That God did this. And he said, Yet her treacherous sister, or sister, Judah, did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry, and there the word is porneia, through her porneia, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. Now, what if we, keeping this in mind, if I'm right about Jesus thinking in the Sermon on the Mount, there's two things we can, we can derive from this. First, Jesus chose to use the word porneia because it pictured adultery in the worst possible, most negative light for the heinous sin that it really is, Right? But he also used it because it's the only basis for divorce God used when he divorced Israel. I think when Jesus used this word, he was saying, you can divorce for the reason God divorced, and only for that reason. God divorced Israel for porneia, which is a negative way of describing adultery. I'm describing it that way to remind you that God, who instituted marriage, has demonstrated to us there's one reason for divorce, and it's porneia. That's what I think is behind what Jesus says here. It's, the, to me, the best way to make sense of what he says. I don't think he's trying to broaden out beyond what most of us would think of as adultery, right? To broaden it out to all kinds of... Like if your husband... Views pornography. Some people say, well, it says porneia here. My husband viewed pornography. I can divorce him. I don't think Jesus is trying to broaden out the sin category here. I think it's quite the opposite. I think he's recalling Old Testament teaching that they haven't been recalling like they should have. <laughs> In his use of this language and saying to them, no, God is very strict about this. Look at his example. I, I, I put it to you that that might be the best way to understand this. I'm, I'm convinced that that's the best way. I won't, you know, I'm not going to go to the stake over it. I won't demand that you agree with me. I know that there are different commentators that think different things. Maybe we can have great discussion about it over lunch if you want to today. Um, and uh, give it some thought and see if you agree. It certainly makes sense of Scripture if we interpret Scripture by Scripture. Remember, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so Jesus wants them to see divorce as the terrible thing it is. If you go back and look at God's example, did he, did he look for the first opportunity to divorce Israel? No. We shouldn't either. In fact, even in the case of adultery, God forgave and forgave and forgave and forgave. That's the example he sets for us. But people minimized marriage. 
And they minimized adultery as a terrible thing even in his day, and they do it in our day. I think Kent Hughes illustrates this point well when he writes this in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He gives this illustration. He writes, the February 1973 issue of McCall's magazine carried an article entitled, Is Anyone Faithful Anymore? Now, this is 1973, and things have only gotten a lot worse since then, right? He says, in which the author included the following story. A young wife was at lunch with 11 of her friends who had been meeting together regularly to study French since their uh, children had been in nursery school, and they conversed. And as they were talking, one of the women, the group's leader, asked, how many of you have been faithful throughout your marriage? Only one woman at the table raised her hand. That evening, when the young wife told her husband about the conversation, she revealed that she was not the one who had raised her hand, that she had been faithful. He was shocked and devastated. But I have been faithful, she added. Well, then why didn't you raise your hand? And she replied, I was ashamed. Can you imagine that? Ashamed to say she'd been faithful to her husband with a group of women that thought cheating was fine. He writes, uh, times have changed, had they not? It used to be that people would go to extreme lengths to hide their infidelity, but today many people are ashamed of their fidelity. We live in a day when some experts speak of healthy adultery. I gave you an example of that earlier. And the married faithful are less vocal than the unfaithful in promoting their ways. A pretty startling example, isn't it? If anything, our culture is more like this now than it was in 1973. Jesus, though, emphasized the heinous nature of infidelity of any sort, but he also still permitted divorce, as we've seen on the grounds of porneia, or sexual immorality, which we should take as adultery, I believe. It's important to remember that, as we've already seen, even though Jesus allowed divorce on the ground of sexual immorality, it is still clearly not seen by him as in keeping with God's best intention for marriage, particularly if you go back and and you read a parallel text in Matthew 19 particularly if you keep in mind the example of God in Jeremiah 3. So even in the case of marital infidelity, divorce should be seen, I think, as a last resort. Now, I've known, I've known a, I'll give you two examples, and my wife is a pastor. There are many more of them. I met a man who lived in my neighborhood years ago, who, while he was courting his wife, uh, he'd become a Christian, and then she professed to become a Christian. They got married, and then in the course of their marriage, she, re- she, she uh, cheated on him constantly. And he tried to get her to go through marriage counseling. He brought her to counsel with me. We talked about it, and then finally she just told him, listen, I don't, e- I don't even believe this Christianity stuff, I've decided. And I don't want to be married to you anymore. And I don't want to go through marriage counseling. And so she left him, and he was devastated, and he felt guilty. Now, we'd identified a few things that he could have done better as a husband, but, but frankly, very few. He was a good man. He was very good to her, um, and he felt guilty, and I tried to help him see that's false guilt. Jesus says, You're not, you have not sinned. You did what God did in Israel, in in Jeremiah 3 with Israel. You tried to forgive her. You tried to work it out. You tried to keep your marriage together, even though she hurt you so badly. You have nothing to be guilty for here. I still think sometimes he feels guilty about it to this day. That's false guilt that he's carrying because Jesus says he's not guilty. If he is, so is God. That's what God did with Israel. No, he's not guilty. Kim and I met another couple. They were sent to us for marriage counseling, and he had cheated on his wife, and she was devastated. And we had to talk about this a lot. 
she struggled and struggled and she just couldn't trust him and and I had to explain to her you know forgiveness doesn't mean you trust right away it means you're committed to rebuilding the trust right and she thought because she didn't trust him it means she didn't forgive him and that's not the same thing you know one example I could use is if uh, if I were at a work site and some guy put up a ladder and I climbed up on the ladder and he put it up wrong and I fell down and broke my leg well I can forgive the guy doesn't mean I want him setting up my ladder anymore right that de- and, and because I'd rather set up my own ladder and not let him set up, doesn't mean I haven't forgiven him. Right? But he's got to win my trust back. right? Well, that happens in a marriage situation like this. And so she struggled uh, with that and, and forgiving him. And, and we even went to, with her to see a divorce lawyer. We told her, you have biblical grounds. And if you, we're not going to say you don't. And you won't be sinning. If you choose to divorce him, I do think it would be better if you try to forgive him, though. Regardless of whether or not you divorce him, you've got to forgive this man. That's what God calls upon you to do. And so she focused on forgiveness. Because regardless of whether she stayed married to him, she had to forgive him. And the more she focused on forgiveness, the more she wanted to stay married to him. And wanted to put her marriage back together. And they're still married to this day. We spent a year counseling them before. And then we did a, a, a ceremony for them where they renewed their vows. And they're still married. In one case, it didn't work out. In another case, it did. In neither case would it have been sinning had they divorced. But, but the woman in the second case thought, but for me, divorcing would, would be sin because it's refusal to forgive. And that is a sin. And until I forgive him, I can't make the decision about divorce. And once she forgave him, she decided she didn't want a divorce. Those are just some examples. Now, in the case of that, the first example, he actually had two grounds of divorce. Adultery and abandonment of a believer by an unbelieving spouse. Paul brings that up in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. Just to bring in the whole counsel of God here. In 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, Paul says, But to the rest, I, not the Lord. Everybody would have been familiar with the past, the kind of teaching Jesus just gave. And Paul's saying, I'm not quoting him here from what you know. This is new, what I'm saying. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. There's that third person command. Don't do it. <laughs> right? And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, and we won't get into all of what that means. It doesn't mean that the unbelieving wife is a believer now, because he just called her unbelieving, right? So whatever sanctified here means, it doesn't mean believer. But I think it means set apart in some way. God has brought this unbeliever into union with this believing person in his providence for a holy purpose, right? And Paul says something about that. And he says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. And being not under bondage, that means you can divorce. And I think that also implies freedom to remarriage, as in the case in Matthew 5. Um, but then he says, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? God has brought them into the sphere of the church and into close union with a believer, and he has set them apart. And that purpose of setting them apart might be to save them, right? And you've got to keep that in mind. But again, observe that divorce is an option to be avoided, if possible. That remarriage is, I think, again, apparently allowed for the divorced person on the grounds of this abandonment of an unbelieving spouse, which I would argue would be, you know, a kind of spiritual adultery, kind of like that, maybe, that Israel committed against God. Maybe we could view it that way. So both our Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul, who received his teaching ultimately from Jesus, allowed divorce 
they seem to view it as a last rather than a first resort. That's a hard thing to hear when you've been hurt badly. If you're one of those people who have been hurt like that, uh, just focus on forgiveness is all I can say. Make that your goal. I'll, I'll conclude with, a, with a, I think, a helpful quote for pastors and give you some of my perspective from John Stott, who has said this, speaking personally as a Christian pastor, whenever somebody asks to speak with me about divorce, I have for some years now steadfastly refused to do so. I have made the rule never to speak with anybody about divorce until I have first spoken with him or her about two other subjects, namely marriage and reconciliation. Sometimes a discussion on these topics makes a discussion of the other unnecessary, as I found with that one woman, right? At the very least, it is only when a person has understood and accepted God's view of marriage and God's call to reconciliation that a possible context has been created within which one may regretfully go on to talk about divorce. This principle of pastoral priorities is, I believe, consistent with the teaching of Jesus, and I couldn't agree more on that. As you can see, it's the way I've handled things over the years. I pray that all the married people here today, uh, I don't know all all of your situations. Some of you are newer to me uh, than others. Um, if If you're having marital difficulties, please focus on reconciliation. Please focus on wanting to honor God with your marriage rather than throw it away. For all of us who are married, let's keep in mind that perhaps the single best witness we can be in a culture where divorce and broken families is so rampant is to have godly marriages and to make that our priority. It's a high and a holy calling. And I can tell you, as the old example goes, if you keep Christ at the center, right, the two of you will only ever get closer together. Let's endeavor to do that. To honor Jesus' teaching. To honor God's will for our lives. And if you're one of those who've been divorced... Maybe, you're, maybe you had biblical grounds for divorce and you're like that man I described and you still feel guilty. You are not guilty. You're not. Except Jesus' teaching, which tells you you are not guilty. And don't beat yourself up with false guilt. Maybe go back and read Jeremiah 3 and cry the tears that God would have shed in the same situation, right? And remember that he loves you, and he knows where you're at. He knows what you've gone through. He's been through it too. For those of you who've been divorced for reasons that weren't biblical, and there's nothing you can do about it now, they've moved on, you've moved on, and you're where you're at in God's providence, you can lay down your guilt too. As we, as we sang earlier, our sins, there are many. His mercy is more. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's the unpardonable sin, Jesus said. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. God will and does forgive you. Let's pray. Holy Father, I hope I've been a help to my brothers and sisters in the Lord in trying to wrestle with the teaching of our Lord Jesus in the context of the whole of Scripture. I'm trying to do what Jesus is demonstrating for us here and not be like the scribes and Pharisees when we read the Bible and pick and choose what we want to read, but to try to take the whole counsel of God and to understand the fullness of what you have to say and to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, a righteousness that honors you is our great heavenly father. Lord, I thank you that like my parents, I did not divorce 
or ever, that I've never be, even been tempted. It's not even a word we've ever even thought about or brought up in my marriage, and I'm so grateful for that. But other people have not been so blessed, and they've been hurt deeply, some of them. Betrayed in the worst possible way. And they're still maybe even suffering from that and even carrying some false guilt around when they had biblical grounds for divorce. Please, Lord, give them peace, I pray. Fill them with your peace. Take that burden away from them, I pray. For any here who have divorced and they look back and they know they did it for selfish reasons and it wasn't godly and it it wasn't for the reasons that you allow Well, help them to have peace and forgiveness too and not carry that around anymore. But leave their sin at the foot of the cross with all of its guilt and shame and know your peace and forgiveness in the depths of their souls. That's my prayer for them, Lord. And for those of us who haven't been tempted to divorce, help us never, ever, to be haughty, prideful, because there, but for the grace of you, our Lord God, go each one of us. It's only by your grace, if we have good marriages, that we have good marriages. You are responsible for anything good in us. And help us never to forget that. Lord, we'll give you all the glory that you so richly deserve in your answering of these prayers. We ask these things, as always, in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I thank you once again for your kind attention. I know we bit off a lot today. (laughs) We had a lot to chew on.